As we stand together, let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you are the shepherd of our souls. And I pray, Lord, that as we have gathered this morning to hear from your word and to feast at your table, that you would shepherd our souls toward Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, would you uh, speak to us now through uh, the living word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. Well, here we are this morning at the end of the first chapter of Philippians. We've made it, made it to the end of the first chapter of Philippians. And I hope that as we've been taking our time through this letter, you've found it as encouraging as I have. I have been so encouraged by uh, this letter in this season of my life and uh, in this season of our church's life, encouraged by its clarity uh, and encouraged by its simplicity, but it, how its simplicity is able to speak into our complexity, both as individuals and in our corporate life. We are reminded time and time again, time and time again through this book to find in Jesus, no matter what we're facing, as individuals or as the church of Jesus Christ, to find in Jesus and to find in the good news of his gospel everything that we will ever need. Now, this was a message that the church in Philippi really needed to hear. It's why Paul wrote this letter to them. Most of them had heard the gospel. Most of them had believed in the gospel. But now that they were bumping into some difficulties, would they move on from the gospel or would they move deeper into it? And I think for many of the same reasons, it's important for us as the church of Jesus Christ to ask those same questions of ourselves. We've heard the gospel. Many of us, I, I pray, I hope, have believed the gospel. But when we bump up against difficulties in our life, when we bump up against difficulties in the church, will we be tempted to move on from Jesus or will we be drawn deeper in? We can approach the gospel, I think, one of two ways. The first way we can approach it, which is the way Paul wants us to, is that it is the core, that Jesus is the center. Everything revolves around him. Everything is built upon him. Everything is drawn from him and connected to him. He's the core. The gospel is the core. The, the second way we can approach it is that it's sort of like a feature. <laughs> it's like a menu item. Maybe it's like a an item on the menu at the Cheesecake Factory. It's one of billions of good things, but it's not essential. The gospel is either the core, around which everything is centered, and from which everything is drawn, or it's like a Christmas ornament. It's beautiful, but it's on the side, and it's not particularly fundamental to anything. So we come this morning to the end of the first chapter, in chapter one of Philippians. And this chapter has called us time and time again, you may have noticed by now, and to believe again and again and to move deeper again and again into the gospel. And Paul here this morning in these four verses takes another opportunity to drive the gospel home. He wants to do that for a reason this morning. He wants us to know the full power of the gospel when it truly is our core and our foundation. To know that the gospel has so much power that it not only saves our life individually, but it also makes our life corporately. You and I individually are given a gospel life. We are. We're given an individual gospel life. And the power of the gospel is so strong 
It's so core that you and I corporately are made into a gospel people. Gospel people. And these four verses, just these four verses this morning, we are addressed in that way as a gospel people. Each of these verses show us what God gives us in order to make us into a gospel people. When Jesus is at the core of who we are, not just a feature, not just a menu item, when he's the core, he saves us and he makes us. Paul hammers this home by reminding us of what the gospel gives us. And the first thing we see in verse 27 is citizenship. It gives us citizenship. Look at verse 27 with me, if you have it open in front of you. Paul begins addressing us as a gospel people saying only, only, or to put it another way, just one thing. I know you've heard all I've said in these other 26 verses, but now listen up. Just one thing, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what is Paul saying here? Here's what he's not saying. Paul is not taking a hard right turn here and all of a sudden laying out some kind of legalistic expectation. It's not as if Paul is making a hard right turn here and saying, I know you've heard me say what the gospel provides, what the gospel gives, and the grace of God and Jesus Christ, but now it's time to prove that you're worth it. Now it's time for you to go out there and live showing that you deserve it. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's all grace. So what is Paul saying? He's not saying that we should behave in such a way that makes us worthy of the gospel. That's impossible. When Paul says manner of life here, our translators in the ESV have said manner of life. The word he uses there is a rare word. It's a word he uses this one time here in Philippians and never uses it again in any of his other letters. And it's a word that literally means citizenship. Our citizenship. And we know from other times when Paul talks about our citizenship that we're citizens of another country. We're citizens of another world. We're citizens of heaven. Paul is saying, live out your citizenship. The New Living Translation gets it right. It says, only live as citizens of heaven. Live out your citizenship, which is a citizenship that was given to you by grace, a citizenship you did not earn, a citizenship you do not deserve, given to you as a gift of grace. Now live it out in such a way that proclaims the gospel. Live out your citizenship in a way that reflects the gospel. Remember, we're, we're told here, remember that you are citizens of heaven. You're citizens of another country. Whether you are Roman citizens living in Philippi or whether you're American citizens living in Fairfax, you are citizens of another country, so let it show. Let your manner of life, Paul is saying, let your citizenship be proclaimed in your life as a gospel people. The gospel never holds up some kind of legalistic standard that we're supposed to live up to. The gospel gives us a citizenship that we are to live into and live out, live out our citizenship. I can tell by looking at you all in this room, you're a well-traveled bunch of people, I can tell well-traveled, and I'm sure that many of you have had that experience when you're traveling internationally, when people can just tell by looking at you or hearing your voice that you're a citizen of another country, 
Raise your hand if you've ever had that experience. It's a, it's a fun experience, isn't it? They can tell just by looking at you, looking up confused at the, the board in a train station. She's not from around these parts. I had this experience when Catherine and I were newly married, uh, when we went over to England once to visit her grandparents who, who lived there. And after we landed, we took the train up to Birmingham to visit her grandparents. And we knew because we were in England that when we arrived at her grandparents' house, they would offer us a cup of tea. Now, I had never in my life, up until that point, had a hot cup of tea. You see, I grew up in the South, where tea is served cold. Tea is served with ice. Tea is served sweet enough that if you want to, you can pour it over waffles. <laughs> tea is served in a glass. It's a glass of tea. It's the way Jesus drank tea, okay? <laughs> this nonsense of a cup of tea. What is a cup of tea? Give it to me in a glass. Give it to me cold. Give it to me in an IV in my veins. So we're practicing this on the train up to Birmingham. I need to ask for a cup of tea. I need to ask for a cup, cup. Cup of tea. Okay, I got it. Got a cup of tea. We get off the train. They pick us up. It's cold and dreary, as it always seems to be in England. No offense. Sorry. I take that back. It's beautiful. We get to their house, and they offer us tea. And what do I say? I open my mouth, and I say, I would love a glass of tea. And they look at me like I'm the backwoods Floridian that I am. I was living out my citizenship without much effort. And that's what Paul is saying here in Philippians 1.27. Live out your citizenship. It's not an expectation to prove yourself worthy. It's an exhortation to live out and proclaim the gospel of the one who has made you worthy. This citizenship has three pieces to it. We see that as we go on in verse 28. Live as citizens of heaven so that Paul can hear a good report. That you're standing firm in one spirit. There's strength that Jesus gives to us. And with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, there's unity that Jesus gives to us. And the picture that Paul paints is not as if it's a, a parade of, you know, 80 people who are marching in such lockstep that they're, that they're just really in good unity. It's actually written in such a way that it's, it's moving as one body. That's what our citizenship produces in us. We, we have one mind, strive side by side with one body. And verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents. There's courage Jesus gives us. So here we see more of how the gospel has the power not only to save us individually, but look at how it makes us corporately. We belong to Jesus and we show that our citizenship is in heaven. We see here, we show that our identity is in Christ by standing together, striving together, and by our courage in the face of opposition together. We are a gospel people. We're given citizenship in heaven, so live it out. And now we're reminded as we go on, we have also been given salvation in Christ. And salvation in particular, Paul wants us to know, from opposition and from destruction. Paul's encouraged us in verse 28, not be frightened in anything by your opponents. And now moving on, Second half of that verse, he says this, this meaning your unity, your apparent citizenship, this is a clear sign to them, opponents of the gospel, opponents of God, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So this point calls for a visual, calls for a prop. 
It's been a while since I've used a prop in a sermon, so hope you don't mind. Um, for the sake of this example, um, I, want, I want to use this prop. So here's a clear sign, okay? See this clear sign? What is this clear sign? See this choir? What does this clear sign clearly say? Good job. This clear sign clearly says destruction. Now, for the sake of this example, just for the next 30 seconds, imagine that all of you, all of you symbolize opposition people. You symbolize enemies of the gospel. Don't be offended. It's okay. It only lasts 30 seconds or so. You symbolize and opposition people, opponents of the gospel, opponents of God. And when you come against me, because I'm symbolizing in this illustration gospel people. When you come against me, you see it as destruction. You see it as your plans have prevailed. You see it as your plans have worked. You have destroyed me. But I'm a gospel person. And I'm in Christ. And so I can see it's actually a two-sided sign. And you can't. Ha! Ha! And what I can see in Christ is that what you see as a clear sign of destruction for me is a clear sign of salvation. See that? You see destruction. I see salvation. Gospel people see both sides of the sign. We see both sides of the sign. What looks like destruction what feels like destruction, what smells like destruction, what on paper might look like destruction. Because we serve a redeeming God, we serve a delivering God, we serve a way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness kind of God, that what looks like destruction is actually salvation. Two examples from Scripture, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. So all the way back in the book of Genesis... Joseph, thrown into prison by his brothers, betrayed and slavery, spends years away from home, forgotten, lost. When things come full circle for Joseph in chapter 50 of Genesis, verse 20, and he's looking at the people who had caused destruction to him, who thought they had killed him, thought he was dead. What does Joseph say to them? He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph saw both sides of the sign. Another example, a little less far back in the Bible, book of Acts. We're at the stoning of Stephen. He's about to be executed, about to be silenced. Their plan's about to work. They're going to kill him. And we're told that just before he is killed, he is full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then Stephen's final words, before they destroy him, before he's executed, what are his final words? He says, behold, I see the heavens opened and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He saw both sides of the sign. A clear sign to his opponents of destruction, a clear sign to him of salvation. And you know who was standing just a few yards away? Paul. Paul was standing there in the crowd of the killers as one of the opponents of God, opponents of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts 8 verse 1 says, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. He approved of it. It was a clear sign to Paul of destruction. But God, right? But the gospel, but the saving work of Jesus Christ that redeems sinners, that redeems enemies, that redeems opponents of God like Paul and like you and like me and turns our destruction into salvation. 
God uses the kisses of a betrayer. God uses the cries of crucify him, crucify him. God uses a cross of crucifixion to turn death into life and turn destruction into salvation. The cross is the ultimate sign of what looks like destruction on the one side, but is actually salvation on the other. And remember, for those of us who are Christians, remember that in our baptism, we are sealed with the sign of the cross. There is nothing anyone can do to you. They can mock you. They can belittle you. They can throw you in prison. They can even take your life. But the cross is the two-sided sign to the world of their destruction, but to you and me of our salvation. So we can stand and we can sing at the top of our lungs. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand because till he returns or calls me home here, here under the clear sign of the cross, here in the power of Christ I stand. The gospel gives us citizenship in heaven. It gives us salvation in Christ. And next, this is a a difficult one. It gives us grace to believe and to suffer. Grace to believe and to suffer. Paul says it plainly in verse 29. For it has been granted to you, granted to you, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to us that we should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. Now we love, it's, it's easy for us to accept God's grace that leads us to believe, but it's much harder to accept God's grace that leads us to suffer for his sake. This is difficult for us, painful for us, but this is an invitation. It's what I mean. An invitation here to go deeper into the gospel, to have it at the center of who we are. Listen to Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Listen to what Jesus says about suffering for his sake. He says, blessed are those, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's also saying when you suffer in my name, you're in good company. The gospel helps us see suffering for Jesus as a gift, as a gift. Paul says it's been granted that we would suffer for his sake. What does that mean exactly? Suffer for his sake. Well, it actually means literally to suffer for him. Or to put it differently, to suffer in the place of him. Think back with me one more time to the book of Acts. Let's go back to the book of Acts in our minds to when Paul or Saul was persecuting and opposing and destroying Christians. What did Jesus say to Saul when he knocked him off his horse in Acts 9, verse 4? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But Saul hadn't been persecuting Jesus. He'd been persecuting Christians. Jesus says to Saul, actually, it's the same thing. Jesus says, you persecuted Christian, you persecute me. Jesus says, you make a Christian suffer, you make me suffer. Those Christians in the book of Acts apparently have been suffering in the place of Jesus. Remember, 
in this portion, the book of Acts, Jesus had already ascended. Jesus had ascended into heaven where he no longer suffers. His sacrifice is complete, finished on the cross, once for all, glorified, risen. The risen Jesus says to Christians, when you suffer for my sake, you suffer in my place. Jesus no longer suffers, but our identity, get this, our identity as gospel people is so closely linked with Jesus that we not only identify in Christ, Christ identifies with us. So when we suffer for the name of Jesus, we suffer for his sake. And this is a gift. Paul says it's a gift. And this is also mind-blowing here, that the sinless Savior who suffered in our place on the cross now calls us in a sense, to suffer in his place on earth. Now, in his suffering, he took our sins upon himself so that now, in our suffering for his name, we take his grace upon ourselves. We don't suffer to earn God's grace. We suffer as a gift of God's grace. We go deeper into the gospel. The gospel gives us citizenship, In heaven, salvation in Christ, it gives us grace to believe and to suffer for his sake. And now as we close, it gives us, the gospel gives us one fight. One fight. The Philippian church had seen Paul suffer. They had seen him suffer at the hands of the opposition. And now in the last verse of this chapter, Paul's reflecting on this. And he gives a word of exhortation to the Philippian church in verse 30. He says, in the days to come... As a gospel people, that church would be, quote, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. But they're in different places. They're in different cities. They're dealing with different people. They're seeing different faces, different issues. And yet, Paul is saying we have solidarity in our fight because it's one fight. It's one fight. And the same principle applies for us here this morning. That down through the centuries from that day in Paul's prison and the church in Philippi and to this very day, the church of Jesus Christ is called to engage in that same conflict. We are given one fight and one fight only. And our fight is against our shared enemy, the devil, who himself apparently was the mastermind behind the opposition that Paul faced the opposition that Philippi faced, and the opposition that this church faces. The gospel gives the church of Jesus Christ, spanning the centuries, spanning the globe, spanning denominations, one fight. And it's a fight against our one shared enemy, the devil. And so speaking of the devil then, is it any wonder then that his prime objective as the enemy of the church is to distract the church and convince the church that its fight is actually with itself. And so the church turns inward and it fights over non-essentials and it fights over music and it fights over preferences and traditions and a million things that don't matter over secondary matters. And the more it does this, the more the church of Jesus Christ fights with itself the less and less the church engages in the same conflict that Paul had 
which is the only one that matters. Listen, a gospel people, a gospel church like this church, which is centered around and built upon Jesus Christ, will not spend any of its energy, any of its time, any of its resources anymore fighting with itself, but will instead spend its time and its energy and its resources on the one fight and the one mission that God has ever given us, which is the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is not to fight with itself anymore. We have one fight. So here we are, end of this chapter. We've come to the end. We've had the gospel hammered home once again today. And so may I ask then, what will compel all of this in us? in the weeks and months and years to come, what will compel all of this in us? How can we stay clear on all this? And Philippians, once again, encourages us in this way because it's not by a long list of rules. It's by one rule. And it's a rule that was exemplified and personified and crucified and glorified in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our rule. Jesus is the rule for the church. And it's by looking to him and by centering ourselves on him that he will lead us forward. Jesus not only saves you and me as children of God individually, he also makes us into the people of God corporately. You and I are given a gospel life, and you and I, the church, are made into a gospel people. Truro. This is who we are. And by God's grace, this is who we will increasingly be. It feels appropriate at the end of this first chapter for us to pray together as a church, to sort of reflect on what we've heard in this chapter before we move on to chapter two next week. And there's this beautiful song, a prayer to the Holy Spirit, uh, from the vantage point of the church asking the Holy Spirit to help us. And so it seems appropriate that at the end of this chapter, we would stand and we would sing this song as a prayer. Would you stand? Zach's gonna play. I'll lead us in this prayer together. Holy Spirit, living breath of God. Let's sing this as a gospel people this morning, asking for his help.